You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy the sermon. Um, we've talked over time about unity in the church. Uh, we've talked about unity in the body. Uh, mostly we've talked about it in the local body, but about being together, being one accord. Um, for those of you who've gone through Acts with us, we see a lot of language about the fellowship of the believers, about being together, about being in one accord, about being unified. And this is kind of the, the hallmark of the church when it started. People are excited about salvation in Christ. And primarily they're just excited about that, about the fact that they can be saved. The Messiah has come. Um, the King has come. Christ has come. Uh, Satan and death have been defeated. Yes, we have to continue to walk through um, in this broken world until the end, but we get to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is excited. The church is together. They're together as one. And that's how it sort of starts out. Today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, and then we're going to look at some some parts of 1 Corinthians, okay? And as we do that, I want us to be thinking, thinking about ourselves, thinking about our church, this local expression of the body of Christ, um, and thinking about the church as a whole worldwide. Um, All those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, all the Christ followers in the world, I want us to be thinking about that. And I want to ask, uh, have you ask a couple questions of yourself and just start thinking through this as we go through this message. And so here's a couple questions. Um, What kinds of issues are worth breaking fellowship over? Uh, What should it take to divide us? What should it take for someone to say, I cannot worship with you? Um, think about that a little bit as we walk through this, and, and you'll see where it comes back later on in the sermon here. So um, when Christ has spoken very clearly and Scripture has spoken very clearly on an issue, it's very easy to know what we're supposed to do. And so I'm going to read you a prayer that Jesus had for his disciples at the time and for all the disciples, all that would follow him in the future, which includes you and me if you're a Christ follower, right? And so this is what he prayed. He said, This is John 17, 20 through 23. It says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And I just want you to keep that in mind. Christ's prayer for his church, for his disciples as we go through. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll hook you up with a Bible. It's a really fantastic uh, book. So um, if you don't have yours with you, you can follow along on your phone. Just so you know, the Bible app does not have your Facebook profile on it. um, If you're looking through that. And people are behind you. They can see what you're doing. All right. if not, we'll have them up on the screen for you to follow along with. Last, last week, in our last message, uh, we were with the Apostle Paul. The last part of that message, he was in Athens, and he was on Mars Hill. He was speaking to the Areopagus. Uh, some of the people there, as you recall, hopefully, uh, they, some believed, uh, some followed Christ, some sort of ridiculed, and some sort of said, let's postpone this. Come back tomorrow. Let's talk about this later. And, and so Paul left them, um, and we catch up with him at the beginning of chapter 18. Let's look at verse 1. It says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. All right, 
Corinth. Um, map time for a second here. Uh, if you remember, we started this second missionary journey in Antioch, uh, and then most recently we've seen Paul on the other side of the map in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then Athens, and now Corinth. If you follow the little red line and the arrows, you can see that uh, path that he took. So let's talk about Corinth for a minute. Uh, set the stage sort of. Corinth was a, a good-sized city in the ancient world, 80 to 100,000 people. It's about how many people were there. It's the capital of the region of Achaia, okay? Achaia is the southern portion of Greece, which includes Athens and Corinth, um, and Macedonia is the northern portion where Philippi and, and Thessalonica and Berea are. We have a map of that, so you can just get an idea. Achaia, Macedonia. Top part's Macedonia, bottom part is Achaia, okay? Corinth is the capital of Achaia. Okay, it's the seat of government there. Now, there's a lot of business going on in this, in this town. There's two ports there, okay? So there's a lot of trade, a lot of business, a lot of money coming through. The ports of Lycaeum and Centria are both there, um, and there's just, there's just a lot of trade, a lot of ships, a lot of sailors, a lot of stuff going on. And Corinth was morally corrupt. I mean, Corinth, real bad, real bad. Um, and we're not going to go into all the ways in which they were corrupt. Hopefully, we're going to get a chance to do that at another time, Lord willing, and really go through the book of 1 Corinthians and talk more about Corinth. But they were, there was a lot of immorality, okay? A lot of immorality, a lot of idol worship. It was actually really well known around the Roman world that Corinth was a very morally corrupt place, Okay, a very bad place. You may be able to think of places uh, that exist today that are thought of as really morally bad. Yeah, this was worse. This was really, really bad. And so um, the people were just major idol worshipers. Uh, they were majorly immoral in a number of ways. And so that's what Paul is walking into as he gets to Corinth. As he arrives, he's in this city, powerful, large, lots of money, lots of immorality. So that's where we are. Let's look at verse 2. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So Paul meets, we meet for the first time here, Priscilla and Aquila. And this couple is a power couple for the Lord. And they're going to be uh, part of the ministry, walking hand in hand with Paul and partnering with Paul for a long time. And so we'll see more of Priscilla and Aquila. It says that they've been removed from Rome. So it's about 49 AD, Claudius got tired of the Jewish folks in Rome. So there's a lot of anti-Semitism, um, a, a lot of racism against Jews at that time in the Roman world, and Claudius didn't like Jews. And so he just said, everyone who's Jewish, get out. Everybody get out of Rome. And so all these Jews were dispersed out of Rome, and some of these were Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul meets here. So let's look at the next couple of verses. So because he, that's Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So Priscilla and Aquila have a trade. They're tent makers. Paul also had a trade. He would have had a trade. A lot of rabbis, a lot of guys that studied like Paul, for those of you who remember who Paul is in terms of his study, he's a very, very scholarly studied guy. But a lot of these guys would also learn a trade at the same time. So they weren't just studying the Torah. They also were keeping their hands busy with work. And that's what Paul is doing. Tent making would have been 
good business. Uh, travelers to Corinth would have stayed in tents. These sailors, I told you there are two ports. When they came into town, they often would have stayed in tents. And so <clears throat> there would have been pretty consistent business for Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. And we see Paul, he's, he's making tents, doing his thing, but not just making tents, right? Because we know Paul. Immediately, it's, <laughs> he goes into the synagogue and he starts to reason and try to persuade both Jews and Greeks there at the synagogue in Corinth. Let's look at uh, verses 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, Remember that Silas and Timothy were left up in Macedonia, right? Thessalonica, maybe they were ministering to Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, the churches up there doing that. Finally, they come down uh, to Corinth where they meet back up with Paul and they get there and Paul is compelled of the Holy Spirit to preach Jesus as the Christ to the Jews, to boldly go out and say, look, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. He rose from the dead. He's God. And so Paul does that. And as we have often seen, while some people are like, yes, I like this. This resonates with me. I believe it's true. Some people get very tied into their traditions, and they reject him, and that's what they do here. Some of the Jews reject him. They start blaspheming, probably saying very negative things about Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he, he shook his garments, right? Uh, you know, just, I don't know what that would have looked like exactly, but he, you know, it, was a, it was a symbolic gesture. It was a way of distancing himself from them. Um, this is like when Jesus, who sent his disciples out, told them to shake the dust off their feet. The passage is in Matthew 10, 13 through 15. It says, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you bring the truth. If they reject the truth, you shake their dirty town off your feet and you roll. And there's a, and there's a strong judgment coming to those who have received the truth and reject it, who have received the truth and reject it. And Paul says, your blood is on your own heads. I'm clean. For now, I will go to the Gentiles. Um, so he's saying, listen, I told you the truth. I came in here, I spoke clearly, directly, I told you the truth, I didn't hold back from you, you didn't want to listen, and you're now responsible for what happens to you. Now this, this sort of harkens to a passage in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, and we're going to walk through that really quick. This is the passage, it says, this is in Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees a sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. They were saying, listen, this watchman that's getting set up, the job is to look out for the enemy, right? To look out for danger. 
And if the watchman is being a good watchman and looks out and sees danger and blows the trumpet, then the people will hear it. And if they decide, ah, false alarm, right? You've been, you know, where there's like a fire alarm that goes off and you're pretty sure it's a drill, sure enough to bet your life to where you don't do anything about it, right? Um, I've been there at least. Um, and, and so they say, ah, no big deal. Then if they die, that's on them. Their blood is on their own head because they heard the warning and refused to accept it. But if you don't blow the trumpet, then if somebody dies, it's on the watchman's head. So Paul is basically saying, I did my part. I was faithful here. I spoke the truth to you. He didn't let fear stop him. Certainly, if anybody had a reason to fear speaking about Jesus Christ, was it not Paul? Have we not seen him beaten and persecuted and imprisoned? Is that not sort of the the whole thing that we've seen going on over and over? And yet he didn't let fear stop him. He spoke the word boldly, right? He spoke the word boldly, and they chose not to listen. And so he shakes shakes his clothes, and he says, it's on you. I blew the trumpet. You deal with you now. I'm going to the Gentiles. Maybe they'll listen to me. Um, This is something to think about. The next time that the Holy Spirit compels you to speak truth in someone's life, the next time that you just feel that, that little knock on your heart that says, now is the time to say something about Jesus. Now is the time to speak some truth to this person, to this group, to whoever it is. And this happens to all of us at different times where it's just like, here and now is when I'm supposed to say, can I pray for you? you know, can I tell you about what Christ has done in my life? And there's a fear, right? Not the fear that Paul had that we're going to get imprisoned and beaten and stoned and, and, and all those kinds of things, right? But a different kind of fear, a social fear, an awkwardness fear. Uh, am I going to jack with this relationship fear? Are people going to think I'm weird? That kind of thing. And that's a real fear. I'm not trying to downplay it. That's a real fear. Not as significant as a fear that Paul would have legitimately had, but a real fear. Nevertheless, when the Holy Spirit compels you when the Holy Spirit says, do this thing, you got to do it. you got to do it, right? And if you do it and they do make it awkward and they reject you and whatever, guess what? I wouldn't recommend like shaking your clothes at them or anything. Um, that's probably not going to go over well. But, or yelling out, your blood is on your own head. Then they're going to really have a reason to think you're weird, right? But there is, there is a sense in which you've brought them the truth. It's been put in front of them. If they reject it, they reject it. Now, the good news is, is that some of these folks who are rejecting Paul now are likely the ones that we'll see later who come to know Christ. Even though they're rejecting at that point, they do come around. Remember, your responsibility is to speak the truth. It's not just me on a Sunday morning up here on this stage talking about Jesus. It's you every day, in every way, in every relationship Listening to the Holy Spirit and speaking truth where you're supposed to speak truth. Learning how to speak it well, learning how to give a reason for the hope within, and speaking effectively to those who the Holy Spirit's calling you to speak to. And then whose responsibility is it? Then it's God's responsibility. God changes the heart. You're not going to change anybody's heart. I don't care how good you are of an arguer. I don't care how eloquent your speech is. You cannot change hearts. God changes hearts. He works with people. Your responsibility is to speak the truth. And if they reject it, then that's their issue between them and God. Let's look at the next verse, verse 7. And he departed from there 
and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So kind of anticlimactic, a little awkward, like, I'm out of here, and shakes his thing up. He walks like three steps and goes to the guy's house next door and stays there. So every time they're coming to church, it's like he's still there. Um, so kind of weird, but actually uh, you're going to see it works out pretty well uh, for, for Paul and for the kingdom of God. If we look at the next verse, it says, Then Crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So apparently being in proximity to the synagogue maybe was a clever idea because Paul, even though he was no longer speaking directly to the synagogue because they were rejecting it, maybe he was having some opportunities to be around those who are around the synagogue, and in this case, Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, ends up relenting from rejecting Christ and accepts Christ, believes his entire household is saved, and then a bunch of other people in Corinth, including, I'm guessing, some of the people who were in the synagogue who before had been rejecting Paul. They come to him. You never know what the Lord is going to do through you and your testimony. You never know what the Lord is going to do through those that he uses you to bring the word to and who come to believe in him, you never know what power and how far out those ripples are going to go. And in this case, one guy comes, then his household comes, then a bunch of other Corinthians come to know the Lord. And so it, it turns out to be an amazing thing. This guy believes his household, they get baptized, they're saved. Um, Jesus has a way of multiplying his disciples, and he does it his own way, which I think is pretty cool. So let's look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. All right. So, uh, Jesus comes, the Lord comes, and speaks to Paul in a vision at night. And he basically says, Hey, listen, you don't have to worry. No one's going to attack you and hurt you. Now, for Paul, I can just imagine this was probably incredibly relieving. Um, he has been in a lot of situations where that promise wasn't given, where it was, you got to speak and bad things might happen. They might start throwing rocks at you. Uh, sometimes they did, right? And so now for Paul to get sort of the green light with the Lord saying, listen, in this situation, I'm actually completely protecting you from persecution. You're going to have the opportunity to really disciple this group of people over a long period of time which he did. Over a year and a half, Paul stays in Corinth and gets to preach and teach the Word of God to these people. And that's an awesome experience that these guys got to have. What an amazing way to get your church plant started, to have the Apostle Paul there for a year and a half as your pastor, really, really getting you into the, the doctrines, the beliefs, what you need to know, what you need to understand. Um, it was an amazing thing for them. And so I think Paul's pretty happy at this point. Uh, let's see what happens in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and he would have, as proconsul of Achaia, he would have been at Corinth, right? Because I told you that's the seat of government there. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Uh, Gallio, we have actually a lot of information about in history from other authors outside of Scripture. Um, we know who he was. It's actually one of the ways that we're able to date this time really effectively of when this happened because we have all this information about Gallio and when he was there in this time, okay? So it would have been around 52 A.D. 
Gallio was kind of a famous guy. He was the brother of uh, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, um, and he was well-connected in Rome. And he, was, uh, he was a judge, a jurist, uh, uh, you know, he was a government official who had a lot of power and who was well-respected. And so any ruling that he gives, as these guys take Paul and put Paul in front of this guy and accuse him of this, any ruling that he gives is likely to have far-reaching implications beyond the city of Corinth, certainly to Achaia and maybe further. Okay, so if he comes and says, yes, Christianity is against the law, that's going to have significant impact on a lot of people who are coming to know the Lord right now. So this is a big moment in legal history for the church at this time. Okay, so let's look at what happens. It says, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if for a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, where there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Okay, let me set the stage a little bit here. What's the question? What's the legal question? I know you guys love it when I get all lawyer nerdy on you. Okay, what's the legal question, class? The legal question here is the Jews are saying Christianity is a new religion. It's a totally new sect. And, and we've talked before about how the Romans actually said what religions you could do and what religions you couldn't do. They did speak to those. Now, normally they were pretty whatever about it, okay? It's not like they were chasing down every new idea and trying to persecute it. But of course, if you really wanted to persecute somebody, you could appeal to the law. So they're saying, hey, these guys, Paul and, and, and these people are coming in and they're teaching people this new religion, which is against the law. They're, they're worshiping God against the law. Now, the other argument would be that Christianity has come out of Judaism, right? That Judaism was there, and then Christianity is, is Judaism going forward. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled it. It's part of Judaism. Now, the question is, should a judge in this case look into the specifics to figure out whether this is a new religion or a Jewish religion? I like the fact that Paul is about to make his argument. You know Paul likes to argue. Uh, that's, that's his thing. I, I, I don't know a lot of people like that, um, but I do know that, that Paul liked to argue, and, and I kind of like him for that. But he's ready to, to hold forth. He's going to give his legal arguments. He's going to give his thing. He's like, and the guy just starts talking, right? Gallio starts talking. Paul doesn't even have to say a word. Gallio comes out and says, listen, give me a break. You want me to get the Torah out? and start to decide whether or not Christianity is really a good part of Judaism or not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get into your religious text to figure this out. Remember, the Jews already had multiple sects of people. We had the Pharisees, we had the Sadducees, we had the Essenes. So they were already divided. They're already split up into, into multiple things, and they certainly weren't asking the Romans to say, oh, this one, this sect, or that sect is illegal. And so when they come and say, this sect of Christians is an illegal religion, Galileo says, I'm not getting involved in that. Okay? And by the way, it's still the case to this day. So if you were to go to, to court and you were to say, um, you know, I don't think this person should have done this or that within the church because we think that Scripture says it shouldn't happen or something like that, which people sometimes have done. They've asked the courts to make rulings like that. It's called a non-justiciable issue. Okay? New word. 
Uh, a lot of letters in that one. Non-justiciable. He basically says, look, you don't have standing to come before this secular court to talk about these things. And so consistently in American jurisprudence, in American law, we have said the court will not answer questions that are specific to a religion. It goes all the way back in this era. It was still going on. Now, we have the First Amendment which makes it particularly important that the court does not come in and start making pronouncements and judgments about what's in the Bible or any text, okay? That's important, but actually this is just a wise rule in general, and Gallio recognized that and said, the last thing I want to do is be the arbiter between people within a religion. Those are, those are deep waters that they would not be wise to wade in, and so that's what happens here, and Gallio says, get out of here. Get out of, why'd you bring this nonsense to me? You know I'm not going to get into this. You're just trying to persecute this guy. All right. Let's look at the next verse, 17. It says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So, apparently... There's enough anti-Semitism, enough racism against Jewish people that after they try to pull this thing, the Greeks get together and beat down the leader of the synagogue, who would have been one of the people who brought Paul there, assumedly, um, in front of the judgment seat, and Gallio doesn't even care. He doesn't even care. Now, now Paul probably did care. Paul was probably very concerned about this because he knows exactly what it's like to be persecuted, to be beaten, and so on. And so he probably had a heart for Sosthenes. There's some um, that would talk about Sosthenes. Who, there's a guy named Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians as a believer. And some people think this might be the same guy. We have no way of knowing that, okay? But of course it's possible. It's possible that Paul felt bad, ministered to this guy, and he came to know the Lord. I don't know. Um, but certainly it was a bad thing, and it was an unfortunate thing. It was not a good thing for the Jewish folks. But I will tell you what did happen. Jesus... The Lord, when he spoke to Paul in that vision and told him it wasn't going to be hurt, that came true. They tried to do it, and where in the past they'd been successful, here in Corinth, he was clearly protected. He didn't even have to speak to defend himself. Paul was not hurt or injured here in Corinth, and so that was a good thing for him. Let's look at uh, 18, 18 through 23. So, Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and had gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, in order strengthening all the disciples. Okay, that's a lot of travel and a lot of stuff in a few verses. This is the end of this missionary journey of Paul's. Okay, he stays a while after this event in Corinth. Then he takes Aquila and Priscilla and sails for Syria. Before he does that, he gets his hair cut off because he had taken a vow. What does that mean? What are they talking about? Uh, this is probably a Nazarite vow. If you want to know more about a Nazarite vow, go to number six and read through number six, and you'll see what a Nazarite vow was. Essentially, it was a vow that you would take uh, where you would not take anything to your hair. You would not cut your hair at all, 
and you would not drink any wine, and you would not touch dead bodies and stuff. It was a, it was a particular time where you were setting yourself apart to the Lord. I think that Dave Vanderplug may have taken this because he cut his hair off recently and, and had it going for a while. But maybe Hunter Haddad's beard too. I don't know. But a Nazarite vow was that. And so Paul looks like he had taken a Nazarite vow. All right? And, and he goes and he gets his hair cut off. And what he would have done is he would have taken his hair. And when he went back to Jerusalem to the temple, he would have brought the hair with him. Thanks, Paul, uh, for your hair. Um, he would have brought the hair with him and a sacrifice, and you can read all about that in number six, what he would have done. We don't know exactly what purpose he did the Nazarite vow for. Um, perhaps it was to connect better with the Jewish folks there. Perhaps there was a particular reason between him and the Lord for it. We just know that he took it, all right? Um, he then travels to Ephesus, okay, and goes to the synagogue, reasons with the Jews, and apparently they're very receptive to it because they're like, dude, stay. Stay with us for a while. And Paul says, no, I have to go to Jerusalem to keep the feast, but Lord willing, God willing, I'll be back. Um, spoiler alert, he will be back. Um, but they wanted to hear from him. So that was a good thing. Things are actually going to Corinth and Ephesus. Things are going better than they had in the last uh, few places that we'd seen him other than maybe Berea. And so he sails to Caesarea and then he goes down to Jerusalem, and then he goes back to Antioch, where he started, okay? So let's get the map up, just so we can see the total of this missionary journey. You see that he starts in Antioch, he goes around, he comes all, all the way back, goes back through Ephesus, Caesarea, down to Jerusalem, back up to Antioch, okay? The couple, uh, these couple of verses here have Paul traveling about 1,500 miles. So a lot's going on that we don't hear about, right? We aren't, we aren't told every single thing that happens for Paul. This would have taken some time. This is like a missionary coming back uh, from their trip and, and connecting with the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch that was ascending church. Um, occasionally we have something like that happen like today because Steve Bragg is back here in the back, if you guys can see him. Yeah, give Steve a hand. He's quite a guy. I like Steve. Um, but Steve is back, right? He's, he's made his straight. Now, he gets to fly in an airplane. It still takes a really long time, like, what, 30 hours or something to get here, which, no thank you. No gracias. Um, but he, uh, although I will be going there in October, so. Um, but Steve uh, ha has come back, and when he comes back, he encourages us and lets us know what's going on. Of course, we also have Skype, which Paul did not have, and so we regularly actually are able to get reports from Steve. But to be back with the brothers and sisters in Christ that he had in these churches would have been an amazing time for him. Then it says that he heads back out. Okay, we don't know exactly how long this all goes on, but he heads back out, and he's actually traveling back to Ephesus, but instead of taking a boat, he goes overland so that he can go back to the churches he visited first in Galatia and Phrygia, um, those, those churches that we read about in the first part of the missionary journey last time, okay? Now, that's the end of the, that missionary journey and the start of the next one. There's one more piece of chapter 18 that I want to get into, and it has to do with a new guy named Apollos. Apollos. So let's read about Apollos really quick. I'm just going to walk through the last part of the chapter. It says, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. Alexandria was a major, major city, okay, founded by Alexander the Great. This was a major uh, uh, Hellenistic, right, Greek culture, of course, Roman um, at the time. And he's an eloquent man, it says. He's eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. Now that is a really nice thing to say about somebody. Apollos was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. The guy could preach, okay? He could preach, he could argue, he could persuade. Apollos was legit as far as being a preacher goes, all right? So he's all these things. He comes to Ephesus, 
This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, so he knew about Jesus. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now that's such a very cool verse to me, that this guy, this incredible preacher, speaker, you know, he's, he's just wowing the crowds with whatever, and Aquila and Priscilla quietly take him and disciple him. Right, This husband and wife who know the scripture, who know Jesus, they come and they take this guy and they're like, this guy has all kinds of gifts. We need to make sure that he understands the doctrine correctly. So they take him aside and they teach him these things. Okay, Priscilla and Aquila are, are awesome. All right. Um, they took him aside and explained him the way of God more quickly. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, where's Achaia? Where we just were, where Corinth is. Okay, He wants to go to Corinth. He wants to go back to Achaia. The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews, publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So this is our new guy, Apollos, this preacher, uh, my old law partner, you know, he's fervent for the Lord and whatever. The guy actually wanted to change his name to Apollos. He's so weird, um, super weird. But that's what he wanted to do. His wife was not cool with that, um, with changing his name to Apollos. But you know, that's what he wanted to do because the, the idea of this guy, this powerful preacher and speaker, it's exciting. It's exciting when, when people can come and they can powerfully proclaim the word of God. It's a blessing to us um, to see that. But that's who Apollos was. Now, that's the end of chapter 18. And you're probably thinking, what were you talking about with all this division stuff? I forgot. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, I do know what I'm talking about. We, we got to flesh out this story, okay? There's, we have to first understand this. The Apostle Paul was there in Corinth for a year and a half, okay? A year and a half solidly teaching these people. No internet, no television, no whatever. They were getting together a lot. They got a lot of teaching. They were set up well. It's hard to imagine a way in which they could have been set up better than they were. Now, Corinth was a, was a nasty city. There was a lot of immorality. There was a lot of bad stuff going on. But Paul had been there, effectively speaking, modeling the Christian life, teaching the word of God powerfully. Not only that, they then had Apollos come out, who was a very effective preacher, speaker, and was refuted the Jews publicly. So they had had a lot of benefits, a lot of benefits, a lot of discipleship, a lot of teaching. Now, a couple years later, Paul's in Ephesus, and we'll get to where he's in Ephesus here in a minute. Just a few years later, 54 to 56 AD, we have the, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written to this church in Corinth, okay? And in this letter, Paul has to call them out for some things, okay? I'm talking a few years. He's given them all this teaching. They're all set up. They're all ready to go a few years, and this is what he writes to them in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, which is Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He goes on in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Who then is Paul, 
And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. A couple years, a few years, and the church is so divided that they're literally subdividing out into I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, Cephas, I'm of Christ, the ones who said I'm of Christ were the ones who are right, by the way. Um, that's who you want to be of, okay? Paul can't save you. Neither can any of these other guys. Uh, these guys have, have really gotten jacked up. Now, there's a lot of other ways in which they got jacked up. First Corinthians has a lot of stuff, but this is, the, this is what I want to deal with today. There are, there are aspects of divisions that exist, okay, in the church. Uh, one would be division within a local church. People simply not being able to get along with one another, not being able to, to forbear with one another, not being able to deal with one another um, in, in a pleasant way, not being able to feel comfortable around another, one another, and so divisions arise. Um, there's all kinds of things that can cause that. Uh, but there's also divisions within the universal church. Now, if you don't know a lot about the difference between the local church and the universal church, um, I really highly recommend that you sign up for the orientation class where we kind of walk through what that means and what that's about. But let's, let's simplify. The local church is like this church, okay, a local expression of the body of Christ. The universal church is all the Christ followers, period, okay, everybody who follows Christ. Um, we read earlier from the prayer of Jesus that his desire was that all of us, all of his disciples would be one, would be one, that we would be unified in him, unified, right? There's only one truth for the Christ follower that is important in this, in this um, aspect, and that is there's Jesus Christ. That's it. We follow him. It's him. He's the one who saved us. Nobody else. Nothing else. But the Corinthians are getting divided. Some are saying, I follow Paul. I like his style. I like the things he says. I follow Paul, Cephas, whatever. Um, they're, they're, they're creating subcultures and cliques within the church. Now, we say the church and we think about it like it's Acts Church. Remember, this is a city of 80 to 100,000 people. All right, it's a, big, it's a big area. Now, in America, if we had a city of 80 to 100,000 people, would there be just one church? No. There'd be a lot of churches, right? A lot of local expressions of the body of Christ. They would be divided. They'd be divided, okay? And, and, and Paul's pointing out here that, look, Christ is the only one we should follow. He and Peter and Apollos are workers just like everyone else in the church, each according to his or her gifts. That's who they are. Christ is the one who we follow. And we've, we've studied about the need for us as a local church, for us as Acts Church specifically, to be unified, to be in one accord, and so on. But we need to talk for a minute about the universal church because you're part of that too. You're part of the universal church, too, as a Christ follower. And sometimes we need to think about our responsibilities, not only to ourselves or to our families or even to our church here at Acts Church, but our responsibilities to the kingdom of God worldwide. What are our responsibilities? What has Christ called us to, to the kingdom of God worldwide? Because you are part of that. You are actually responsible, for, as far as it is in your power, to do what's right as to the universal church, the whole church. I'm not talking about universalists, okay, just so that no one gets uh, confused. I'm talking about the whole church, the worldwide church. Um, here's the thing. We're at a time in history where the universal church is fractured, is divided, 
And there's a lot of that, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos type stuff going on. Now, in some ways, there's actually a movement where there are those who are really moving toward unity. And that's great. That's amazing. Um, it's important, very important to take this seriously because it's the responsibility of Christ followers to be united, to be one, to be one. Each of us and each church as a whole, a local church, has the responsibility to be part of that solution of unification, of loving one another well. We have to have the right heart attitude and the right kind of love towards those who don't necessarily come and worship with us every Sunday morning, but maybe they worship somewhere else. We have to have the right heart attitude towards them because all of us who are in Christ are called to the same mission, the same goal, the same calling. It's all the same. And so we should not be dividing ourselves unnecessarily. So what is it? What is it that divided the Corinthian church? And what is it that divides the church today? What is it? Well, there are probably a number of things. But the one I really want to concentrate on, the one that I see a lot, is differences, differences over primary and secondary matters of doctrine. Okay? Primary and secondary matters of doctrine, um, which is basically doctrine is just, look, what we believe Scripture says about certain things. That's all doctrine means. Um, and, and we have these divisions. Now, what's primary and secondary? Uh, primary issues are issues that would relate directly to who God is, what it means to be saved, right? Just your really basic stuff, the kind of stuff you would find in sort of the ancient creeds. We believe in one God and three persons, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died, that he rose on the third day, um, that we're saved by grace through faith. Those kind of very, very basic fundamental doctrines, those are primary, okay? Someone used the word essential. Those are essential. Everything that's not in that category, and we'll talk about a little bit about what that category is, is secondary. In other words, there are believers who are free to have different ways of, of looking at it, especially different traditions about the way that they, say, do church on a Sunday morning. Okay, those are definitely secondary. But there's a whole host of things that Scripture uh, would allow, I think, for people to have slightly different views on, and that some people will not allow there to be different views on. And so one of the biggest problems with this is that they can, this can cause an us-and-them mentality for believers and for churches. Us and them. Well, them, you know, they do this. We do it right. Right? And so I, I asked a few questions at the beginning. I said, what should it take to divide us? What should it take? How serious should an issue be before we're divided? What should it take for someone to say, I cannot worship with you? I can't do it. What kinds of issues are worth breaking fellowship over? Now, Scripture tells us clearly that we must be united. I just talked about that. But Scripture also teaches us to keep sound doctrine. Now, this is what it says in Titus 1.9. It says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And then Titus 2.1, it says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So we have a balancing, right? We've got to hold attention here between unity and keeping sound doctrine at the same time. We can't be so willing to unify that we would connect with and, and say it was okay for people to believe things that are essential different than what really is essential. Okay, that's important. That's important. So we've got to ask ourselves questions when we're holding this tension, like what's important enough 
to not be in fellowship with someone else. C.S. Lewis uh, pointed out the problem we sometimes have in figuring out which doctrines are essential and which are non-essential, which are primary and which are secondary. He said this in the book, Mere Christianity. One of the things Christians are disagreed about is the importance of their disagreements. When two Christians of different denominations start arguing, it is usually not long before one asks whether such and such a point really matters, and the other replies, matter? Why, it's absolutely essential. Okay, so we need to be clear about what really is an essential and clear about what is not. And then we need to work towards unity in essentials. Unity in essentials and liberty in non-essentials. Secondary matters. We would not let them keep us from being together. So there are some people who would use the name Christ or who would say that they are Christians who are so far off. So far off in essentials. I mean, when they talk about Jesus, they are not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. I mean, there's just, there's just some craziness out there. And in those cases, there's no question that we cannot say, hey, we're all in the same family, we're all Christians, because we're not. We're not. They're, they're so far off in what they believe. But that's actually, those situations are actually relatively rare in comparison to the number of situations where people believe almost every single thing that the church next door believes, except for one little tiny thing. That's more common than the people who are way off. And so we have to move toward unity if the church is going to be strong. If the church is going to be strong. It simply will not be as strong if we're not unified. That makes sense, right? That's just a basic, uh, obvious, fundamental. So this begins simply, because the question is, what can I do? What can I do? It begins simply in this way. Um, Removing any us versus them thinking or us versus them language in the way that you talk about your own church, about what you believe about Scripture, not creating distinctions between you and other people that don't need to be there, and especially not creating distinctions that suggest that you're smarter, more holy, better than someone else who happens to differ with you on a non-essential matter. Okay, it's got to start with us individually doing that and us as a church and having grace and forbearance for other believers in areas that are not essential. Okay? That does not mean, hear me on this, it does not mean that because an area is not essential that it doesn't matter. It very well may matter. So persuade and convince, okay, in love. It it may matter. It just is not essential. It's not something worth breaking fellowship over. That's the question, right? The question, when when Jesus is talking about unity and praying for unity and and, and they're saying, be unified, be unified, be unified. If it was so easy, if it was a super easy thing to do, why talk so much about it? we got to talk about it because it's hard. we got to talk about it because it's hard. It's hard to be unified. The point is, be unified even though it's really hard to do that. That's how you learn to really love people. Walking away and saying, oh, you don't believe this about uh, the particular way baptism works, or you don't believe this about uh, the particular way communion works, or something like that, and so I'm out of here. I'm taking my ball and going over here, and I'm going to start the new church of whatever, where we believe every single thing you believe except this one little thing that's not even essential, but we're going to have our own church and we're going to think we're better than you. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it's hard to stay in and continue with somebody else, even though you're disunified about something that you may find important and that matters, but is not essential. It's not essential, okay? We've talked about how individual believers are called to be part of a shield wall and that the local church does that. And the universal church is that greater shield wall. But if we have divisions in the church, locally for sure, and universally, throughout all the Christ wars, we have divisions, it's not going to be a very strong shield wall. What kind of a shield wall has big breaks in it where these two won't get near each other because they differ on some minor point? 
That's not a very strong shield wall. That's not a very strong shield wall. We are all, as the churches, as Acts Church, as every church around, are called as Christ followers with the same calling and goal. When I was young, I grew up in a denomination where, and I don't know that it was intentional, I don't, I don't know that it was thought about that much, but it would not, my, my feel was that we, that, that denomination, there was an us and there was a them. And there was kind of a, well, we're this way, and then it depended on how many things we differed on or what kinds of things or how important they were to the person was how much they would separate themselves from other believers. Oh, the people over there, they do that. You know, we don't do that because we actually understand the Bible, and they don't, right? There was, there was a lot of that. And I've become more and more convinced by the Holy Spirit that we have to really do something about this way of thinking that still exists in the church, that our call in general, is to be more and more and more unified. Now listen, I am not here putting out a manifesto that all denominations need to be broken down and that everybody needs to, we need to recreate some sort of church that's all one thing. I'm not, I'm not there at this point. We, we got to talk about loving across these things, right? Loving across the, 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 the different names and the different churches. I'm not necessarily talking about breaking everything down and starting the new church. And well, since we're doing that, Acts Church might as well be in charge, right? Um, well, I'm not talking about that, all right? I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about the way that we speak about and think about other believers, all right? Denominations are, it's the practice, denominationalism, another nice long word for you, I think that's got 17 letters in it, I counted, um, is the practice of naming different groups of believers based on their distinctives, which usually has to do with two or three things that they believe that usually are secondary issues, and they make a new denomination, they call themselves that thing, and they separate from other people. Now, denominations have been doing this for a very, very long time. Um, and a lot of people have rejected denominationalism. And so they've gone to the, the non-denominational church movement. Now, the problem with that is this. Um, once you call yourself non-denominational, you've given yourself a name, which is a denomination. So the difference between you and this other denomination is at least they have 50 churches who agree with each other, and you've only got one right? You're actually rejecting everybody else as a non-denominational church, which is to say we're going to do it our own way and the way we think we should do it and so on. Listen, I don't want to get into a big thing about that, but I'm just saying you cannot exit from denominationalism by simply saying I don't, I'm not part of it because as soon as you're not part of it, it means you also are separating yourself from other people. And so the point isn't be denominational, be non-denominational. Everybody is denominational. If your church has a name, you're denominational. The only way you're not denominational is if your church's name is right? Then you can be non-denominational because you don't have a name. Of course, how's anyone going to find you, right? I don't know. But I'm not suggesting anything about that. I'm not, I'm not trying to deal with that issue in a uh, shorter sermon. Um, so what I'm saying is that we just need to work towards unity across denominations. I actually read an article because I was looking for some, some research on this and what other people had said. And this guy starts out and he's just really killing it about unity and how Christ has called us to unity and how over-denominationalism being worked up about these things is, is so bad and that we need to come together and unify. And then the second half of the article, I'm not kidding, the second half of the article, he goes through 
and outlines like however many really like specific secondary issues that everyone has to believe as they stop being denominational about alcohol and gambling and baptism and all the, and it goes through all his little pet theological things and says, why can't we be non-denominational and all believe what I believe? Some of which was, he was wrong about. Um, that's what I think, but I'd still worship with him. Um, but I don't know if he would with me, right? Because so even those who are like, we need to be non-denominational, it's still like, but the rules still need to be kind of what I think, right? We need to be non-denominational as long as non-denominational and we get rid of denominations, as long as it means whatever my things that I believe are is what everybody believes. Well, that's not the way it's going to work, folks. It's not going to happen that way. You're going to have some disagreements with people over secondary issues, hopefully not over essentials. See, if we could put aside the secondary issues for a second, we could get the essentials locked in a lot better, right? And then we would have a really clear understanding, and Christ followers would be more, more able to understand the, important, the most important things about Scripture, and the other things would sort of fade away as things that we could talk about at the barbecue kindly with one another. Kindly, okay? Um, but the call is this. You know, the Corinthian church runs into these problems and they run into them quick, which means, because we're not better than them, which means that we can run into them quick. If this isn't an issue for you and you don't think about this kind of like denomination, I don't even think about that. I just figured we were all the same and just had different names because we like different logos and colors or something like that. If that's you, that's cool. I'm really glad because that means the Holy Spirit's been working for unity, at least within you. But here's the thing. Even if that's you today, that was the Corinthians when they started too. They didn't come out and start thinking about I'm of Paul and I'm of Paulos. They just got into Christ, but it did not take long, even with great teaching. It did not take long until they started to get down this road. And actually, the more someone studies Scripture and the more someone learns, sometimes the more prone they are to start making issues of secondary importance of primary importance. And so it's a warning that I want us to take as a church because as a church, we cannot be that way. Okay? I don't have a problem with denominations in the sense that there are groups of Christians who have come together and formed larger and larger shield walls. That's not an issue. The issue is when one group says we're right and this other group is wrong and we're not going to fellowship with them and it's over some minor thing. Now, we see a lot of Christian conferences, Christian concerts, um, places where more Christians are willing to get together these days. I think there's more of that in the last probably 20, 30 years than maybe there was at a different time. But here's the deal. It's absolutely necessary because culture is no longer saying, yeah, Christianity, we're basically all Christians and so we can have all this thing and we're going to operate as a society that's basically Christian. In fact, it's going the opposite. And where you sit right now in this geographical location, it's more like Christianity is bad. And when Christ says, how about make us one so that people will believe that you sent me, then obviously the opposite is, if we're not one, people are not going to believe that you sent me. I've had a, a guy come to me and be like, how can, how can you even try to talk about Jesus as the only way when even among believers there are however many thousands or whatever of denominations? And it's like, I mean, I have an answer for it, obviously. I always do, right? It may not be right, but... Um, I'm never in doubt. Um, so, uh, you know, we, I can answer that question, but it, it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question. I just, I'm just convinced that we need to be very serious about our call in this area as we move forward. Because of where culture is and because of what Christ is calling the church to, we have to, as much as possible as we move forward over the next year, five years, 10 years, as, as long as it takes until the Lord comes back, that we are moving to break down the walls that exist between 
individual believers and between churches. And this may seem like, ah, this isn't that much of a like, personal feel-good message. Yeah, you're right. Sometimes the message is for us as a church and our responsibility to the church at large. And your responsibility to the church at large is to love across the aisle, is to love people even when there are small things that separate you. Because division can happen to any of us. It happened to the Corinthian church, and they had Paul and Apollos, okay? It happened to them. It can happen to us, and I don't ever want to see it happen inside our body for there to be divisions or between us and other bodies of believers for there to be divisions over things that are not essential. All right. This is important, okay? We are in a battle. Scripture is very clear about that. We're in a battle for the minds and hearts of people to believe the truth. And all we want, all we want as believers is to see people become disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about his kingdom. It's about eternity. And if we're going to be effective in that battle, we have to be together, both inside the church and among all the churches. And so I just would ask that you put that in your heart and let it resonate with you any time that anything starts to build up where you want to make an us-them between you and another believer or between your church and another church so that we can start to become more and more and more unified as Christ's church and see the glory of his kingdom grow. We want to be part of that, and it starts with us individually and with us as a church. So love your brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they're called to serve, in whatever local body of Christ, whatever local expression of his body they're in. Let's have unity in the church, both locally, right here at Acts Church, and in the universal church. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.